Good evening this evening. Uh, as you guys, it must be me, right? It has to be me. Um, as you guys know, uh, we started in a new series last week. We finished up John 1, and now we're looking through the Psalms. Um, our plan is right now to just go one by one through the Psalms. And so last week we got through Psalm 1. We'll be referencing back to that a uh, little bit. But tonight we're going to be getting into Psalm 2. Uh, so if you go ahead and open up your Bibles, we're just going to go ahead and start off by reading through the entirety of Psalm 2. It says this, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee a heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession." Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So Psalm 2 uh, it, it, it's pretty familiar for us to see at the beginning of a psalm, uh, a psalm of David or a psalm of Moses. Uh, you see that, that pretty frequently, but we don't see that at the beginning of this particular psalm. It doesn't have who wrote it. However, if you turn over to Acts 4.25 and keep your finger there, we're going to be referencing this passage a couple times through. Uh, so might be good to just keep your finger in there so that you can reference back to it as I do. Um, in Acts 4, 25, it says, Who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Uh, so we see in Acts 25 that this particular psalm is accredited to being written by King David. So this is a Davidic psalm. This is, this is of David which makes sense as to why there's a pretty blatant connection with Christ and the covenant that God made with David in this particular psalm. Uh, which, let me remind you that that covenant is that uh, God told David that one of his heirs would have a throne that would be established forever. We see that in 2 Samuel 7, chapter 7, uh, which we see applies to Jesus later on. Uh, whenever Jesus' birth is announced to Mary by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. It says, He shall be great, and, his son, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So there's no doubt that this is a, Div a Davidic psalm. This is from David, and that there is a distinct connection to Christ in this, which is what we're going to be looking at tonight. So when we look at this passage, I want you to keep in mind that while the moment of writing this was to probably an earthly king, possibly David, uh, that it is undoubtedly more fully fulfilled in the life and the reign 
of Christ. So as we're looking at these words, they're speaking to him eventually. Uh, remember, some of these words apply to both Jesus and David. David was anointed as king, as we see in, in uh, verse... Um, sorry. One of the verses. that, that, that <laughs> I'll get to it eventually. We're going to come back to that. Um, I'm just jumping ahead a little bit. But David was anointed. Jesus was anointed. The Holy Hill of Zion, which references, uh, is, is Jerusalem. Jesus is, is king over that. Uh, with that said, so keep in mind Jesus as we're going to go verse by verse through this passage. And I'll get back to the anointed thing in just a minute. Um, but ultimately, that's who we're looking forward to, right? The, the Old Testament all points to Jesus. So when we're reading scripture, when we're reading the Old Testament, we have to keep him in mind because eventually that's who it's all pointing to. This is just one of those passages that is, is pretty explicitly pointing to our Savior, Jesus. So we just read Psalm 2. Let's go ahead and look at this chapter verse by verse. So the first three verses here that we're going to be looking at, this, this whole passage can kind of be broken down into three sections. This very first section is, uh, could be titled the, the Fallenness of the World. We get a glimpse at the condition of the world. It says, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Um, this is kind of a rhetorical question. It's almost mockingly asked. And can we not see that in our culture right here, right now? Can we not see that whenever Jesus himself walked the earth? Think of how evil they were. They, they nailed our Savior to a cross. That's, that's pretty blatantly evil. But this, this verse 1 uh, is a rhetorical question. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? It reminded me of John 3.18 that says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So when you are not aligned with Christ, you are not a follower of Jesus, you are standing active, actively against him. It's no surprise that you plot vain things. So heathen here, meaning uh, any, of, any of those who are against God, um, and imagine, that, that word to imagine uh, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Um, the, the word in the Hebrew behind this uh, is a thought of an action. It's like a meditated evil. You, you're picturing it in your mind. This is what I'm going to do. And that word vain, a vain thing, means action without worth. It's not, it, it's, a, it's just a vain act. You're, you're doing it aimlessly. There, there, it's not going to amount to anything. Why do you even try? So that's why this verse is almost mockingly, the world is evil. Why, why do you even try? Because of what I'm about to tell you in the next few verses. Verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's where that word was. I looked right over it. Verse 2, anointed saying, uh, to be the kings of the earth set themselves, uh, the set themselves means to take a stand against. Imagine two armies lining up against battle, right? These people are walking up, very similar to what we see happen in Revelation, walking up and standing against the word of God, against the anointed. Um, as this psalm says, uh, anointed, this psalm is a royal psalm, uh, in that it described at the time uh, the rule and establishment of a king. 
So this, this psalm was probably used whenever a new king came on the throne. Like I said, possibly David. Um, and so at this time, it described that establishment of a new king. But this is clearly prophetic language and that it describes Jesus because Jesus is the anointed one, right? Um, I know in a lot of other translations, uh, it has anointed capitalized to show and demonstrate that, yes, this is referring to Jesus. As I said, um, Acts 4.25, I hope you kept your finger there because now this is when I'm going to be referencing it. 4.25 and 26, we see this pop back up again. It says, who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine the vain thing? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. We see it pretty explicitly pop right back up in the New Testament. And as we go along, you're going to see each of these verses somehow, some way, pop back up again after Jesus walked this earth or while he was walking this earth. So that's verse 2. Verse 3 says, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. For those who rebel against God, his dominion is seen as nothing more than slavery. They view what is good and right as wrong. They view God as, as keeping them from the things of the world, which he does want to do, but they view that as a bad thing. While we who know Jesus as our Savior, we who know that God's word says these things are not good, we stay away from them because they are not good. People of the world see the scriptures as demanding, as preventing them from getting what they really, really want. And so they view it as breaking the bonds. That's what they say. They say, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. Ironically, though, it's Christ that sets us free from bondage to the world, right? How many of you have experienced that? You don't have to raise your hands because if you're a child of God, he has broken you free from that. You no longer have to stand in slavery to the world. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. It's just a, an absolute contrast to the life of someone who does not follow Jesus in these first three verses. But it, then comes the response of God. That's the next two verses, verse 4 and 5. So we see this, this picture of um, kind of su to sum up the first three verses, the world is wicked and their plots against God are futile. The world is wicked. We see that very, very clearly. They plot against Christ. They plot against his anointed. And their plans, while they do plot against him, are not going to amount to anything. So let's get going to, to verse 4 where we see God's response. It says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Lord shall have them in derision. Basically, God is, is, is mocking their plans. He knows they're futile because he knows who he is. He has a right view of himself. He knows that he's omnipotent, omnipresent, that he is over all of creation, that he's preeminent. Imagine it kind of like this. All right, all right, I know what's coming, and your plans are not going to work. You can kick and fight against me, I'm giving you an opportunity for grace, as, as we see clearly in his word, but your plans are not going to amount to anything because I am preeminent over everything. In verse 5, it says, Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore 
displeasure. So we see this, this, this kind of mockery or even just a response of, you're wrong, you're wrong. In verse 5, we see that these people eventually will be terrified, vexed, terrified by his sore displeasure or his wrath and his anger. Imagine for a moment, you're the one standing against, um, imagine for a moment, the one that you're standing against, giving you an answer that you cannot stand against, right? Imagine standing against God and saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And God says, no, you're not. That'd terrify me, wouldn't it? How many, how many times do we do that, though, on a daily basis? Oh, I'm going to do this. And then God says, no, never mind. I know in my, my own personal story that I, I was going to walk away from ministry. I said it last week. God said, no, you're not. You're going you're to go back. You, you don't know it yet, but that's where you're going to end up. It's terrifying to stand against the Lord. Now imagine that the one being that you're standing against is that one who has the power that is displayed all throughout Scripture. Specifically, a good reference for this is Job 1.21, where it says, The Lord gives and the Lord hath taken away. The one you're standing against has the right over your life. We don't want to stand against the Lord. So the Lord addresses them in their action, and this next section is his response to their rebellion. So this is, this is his kind of initial um, initial response, and then he says, this is what I'm going to do in verse 6 through 9. He's, he says he's going to establish a king. So to sum up verse 4 and 5, God is preeminent over creation, um, and he will be known as such whether the world wants to willingly admit it or not. So the establishment of a king is verse 6 through 9. It says, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I would declare the decree the Lord hath said, Unto me, thou art my son, this day have I have begotten thee. In verse 6, God establishes there is going to be a king. Ephesians 1.20, we see this fulfilled where it says, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. In verse 7, it says that, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. The heir to this established throne, the king that God himself is establishing is his own son. This validated Christ's right for the rule over all of the earth. Now in this relationship between the father and the son, um, I know there's, there's many people out there that believe because it says that Jesus was begotten, that he was created. In our last series, we made it pretty clear Jesus is not created. I believe uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. Um, I'm not 100%, don't quote me on that, um, but I'm, I'm 99% sure that that is something that they believe. But that's not what begotten means. Begotten doesn't mean that, that he was, he was uh, a created being, but this word begotten carries with it the idea of being brought forth, being brought onto the scene, being produced, brought out, put into this position, as well as that intimate, one-of-a-kind relationship that you see with a father and a son. There's an intimate connection between God the Father and God the Son, and, and God the Spirit as well. We see this firmly established again in the Gospels. We see it at uh, Jesus' baptism. We see it at the Transfiguration. 
Uh, in Acts 13.33, this particular psalm is quoted and referenced as a prophecy being fulfilled in Christ. Um, and in John 10.30, we see that this can't be the case that Jesus was created because Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Amen. Displays that unique relationship that they had with one another. And in John 3.16, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, you see it on signs at football games, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A lot of people really get that verse confused, but don't be confused. That is not what begotten means. Verse 8, we see, it says, Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Verse, this, this passage, this particular verse, describes the Messiah's rule as being overarching. Everything will be in submission to him. This verse also shows that while there are rulers that stand against King Jesus, that their land is ultimately God's to give and take away. Even their life is God's to give and take away. Their kingdom is God's. He establishes those who are in rule. They have just, just a superficial rule over these people, right? It, it, ultimately, it all goes back to God. But they're deceived by their own desire for power into believing that they can break free from him. Like verse 2 said, they set themselves against the Lord. And in verse 3, they said, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That's why God laughs. He says, really? You really think that you can stand against me? No, you, you can't. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm sending a king to show you that that's the case. He's showing them through the words spoken here that they are not rendered powerless, but that they never had power to begin with. Amen. They're not rendered powerless because what is given to them is God's ultimately anyway. We see it fulfilled in Matthew 28, 18. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth, right before he gives the great commission. Verse 9, it says this, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the fulfillment that we're looking forward to, right? While sin, sin and death have been defeated, eventually we're looking forward to one day where we don't have to deal with sin and death anymore. We don't have to deal with sinful people anymore. We're going to be in a new heaven and a new earth, and we're no longer going to be having to stand against rulers that stand against Christ. Revelation 2, 26 and 27 talks about Jesus having this authority. It actually quotes this particular verse. There's a lot to get into when it comes to that, uh, so I'll save that for another time. The point being here that Christ has the authority over kingdoms and will rule in such a way that these kingdoms will be shattered as God's wrath is poured out. To sum up this section of God's response to the evil people in this world is that Jesus rules over everything, and he's preeminent. It all belongs to him anyway, and we're living in part of that right now. The last three verses are the warning and the promise. Verse 10, it says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. The attention is turned back from, this, this is my plans, to the indignant and the blatantly disobedient kings and people of the earth who stand against God. And grace is given, right? There is grace and a warning. When I tell you about sin, when, you tell, when you're walking down the street with one of your friends or you're at the market and, you're running, and you share the gospel with them, there is grace in telling them that they are a sinner. There is. 
Because if you don't know that you're a sinner, you don't know you need a Savior. So it is vital that we understand that sin is a, is, is a huge part of the gospel. It's why the gospel was even given, because we needed a Savior. We were desperately wicked. There is warning to these people, to these kings, to these ones that stand against Jesus whenever no warning is deserved. It's said to be wise to listen to the instruction of the Lord given. And as we talked about just a few minutes ago, standing against him is not a very wise thing to do. In fact, it should be terrifying to know that we stand, that at one point in our lives, we stood opposed to him. And thankfully, by his grace, we no longer stand opposed to him if you are a child of God. Verse 11, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. To fear the Lord is a couple of things. Reverential awe of God. Also, a true understanding of the power of God. Think about how, how, how terrifying it is that God has the power over life and death. As humans, we, we tend to want to have that power, right? We tend to think, if I eat better, I'm going to be good, right? If I exercise on a daily basis, I'm going to be healthier, I'm going to live longer. But you could be gone tomorrow. You really, you really don't have that much power. We really don't have as much power as we think. That's in the Lord's hands, ultimately. But we don't have to fear, because we're, we know where we're going to end up when we die. Amen. We, 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 don't have, we don't have any uh, variation. We know for sure, the day I die, I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. So it's a scary thing if you're standing opposed to Him. But it's not a scary thing if you know Him as your Savior. Looking at this verse, it says, Serve the Lord with fear. Maybe that word brings a common verse to your mind. I know it brought one to mine. And that was Proverbs 9.10. It said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. If you don't fear the Lord, if you don't have a, a really good understanding of who He is and the power that He has, then it's really hard to serve Him without knowing that. It's really hard to live in the promises that He gives us. If you really think He's, he's so much smaller than He is, how could He fulfill those promises? Does He have the power to do that? But when you really understand who He is, then you know that whenever He says He's going to pour out His wrath on the earth, that it's going to happen. You know that whenever He offers you grace, that that grace is actually there. Think about it. All, our, our dollar bill, well, it's not worth that much or as much as it used to be. There's something behind it showing that it has worth, right? There's something corroborating that. Well, the same is true with God. Whenever you know the worth of what's behind, who he really is, it gives the things that he has said that much more power in your life. Otherwise, you're just taking away from his words on your own. Those words have power whether you think they do or not. So to get it right, there needs to be fear of the Lord. And that's what he says to these disobedient kings. Verse 12, it says, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Kiss the son here, that, that phrase is an indication of allegiance. It, it's showing allegiance to Christ. And as we know, Jesus Christ is the son, son of the living God. This verse echoes the psalm that we talked about last week, Psalm 1, 1 and 2 and verse 6. I'm going to quickly read that. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, 
and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Skip down to verse 6. It says, For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let me reread verse 12 so that you can see how much that parallels. It says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and he perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. See how closely they resemble one another. The ungodly shall perish. The righteous ones who submit to God are blessed, are happy, are joyful. And this looks forward to Romans 6.23. Turn there real quick because this is a, a really common passage used um, in a, a way of, of sharing the gospel. A lot of people use uh, what's called the Romans road. Um, and this is one of those verses that is in it. So if you don't know this verse, follow along. Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no hope without Christ. But with Christ, we have the hope of eternal life. So to sum up this, this last section of the warning and the promise, we are to submit to King Jesus and turn from our ways. Right? Many of you sitting in this room have already done that. But probably all of you sitting in this room know someone who hasn't. You probably know, or if you don't, maybe you should know someone who hasn't so that you have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. To reflect these truths, um, let, let, me, let me sum up this entire psalm in just a sentence. The big takeaway from Psalm 2 is that this psalm is an incredible picture of the coming gospel Amen. that is now here. At the time this was written, this was, just, this was just a thought. It was in the will of God. It was beyond a thought. But it was, it was something to come. It was, it was going to happen one day. But it has happened now. It has happened. And, and some of those events are still unfolding as we see one day Christ returns, brings his church, us, to be with him. And ultimately his rule will be firmly established. There will be no more sin, no more death. But right now we are living in the gospel. Right? We, we, get, we get the opportunity to, to know Jesus as our Savior. The big promise that we can take away is this, that the Messiah who was to come has come. This was a promise given to us in Scripture that one day the Messiah would be coming. One day there would be an anointed king, and yes, the world would stand against him. Yes, the world would reject him and deny him and hang him on a cross, but that he was coming. And by doing that, he was going to wipe away our transgressions. So how do we reflect this truth to the world around us. We live out verse 11. It says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We rejoice, we be joyful knowing that what we have, and we rejoice in sharing it with others. And we fear the Lord. We walk in obedience to Him at every moment in our lives. We share the same warning to our neighbor that has shared it to us. And we remember the promise that we talked about last week, that you will see the fruit of your root. Where are you rooted? Is it in blessing? Is it in death? Do you stand with him, or do you stand opposed to him like the kings that are mentioned in this? Because this, this passage makes clear it's futile to think that you can stand against him. It's not worth anything, and it's not going to amount to anything, because he already owns the nations, and he owns you. It's better to serve him gladly than to go down without even a fight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will head into our prayer time this evening. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for tonight. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we've been able to study your word just a little bit. Lord, I thank you for how much I learned by studying this this week. 
uh, and just the truths that you showed to me. Lord God, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you told generation after generation that one day a king was coming and that he did come. You fulfilled that. Lord, we can trust you because you have shown over and over and over that the promises you have made to us, that you keep them. And so, Lord, we know you are faithful. We know we can trust in the things that your word says. And so, Lord, as we go throughout the rest of this week, Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that we would see them and trust the words, the promises, the good things that you say, and even the bad things, Lord. And that while we read that, that we would be obedient in sharing it to other people. Lord, that we would apply it to our lives so that we might be more faithful to you uh, in, in our everyday living. Lord, we love you. We thank you for sending King Jesus. And um, Lord, I ask that we would all just submit to him wholeheartedly each and every moment of our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.